The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Live from our nation's capital. All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg, sound off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Vaccination front, a complete update. Meanwhile, still gridlock, Congress stalemate on COVID liability, adding to doubts on relief. We've got a complete, complete analysis, preview, and recap as we look for what's next with our chat with the Chief Craig Gordon. He joins us to kick things started. We begin tonight with the big story. President-elect Joe Biden said earlier today that the U.S. needs presidential leadership right now as the daily death toll from the coronavirus exceeds 3,000 people. Here he is. This week marked another tragic milestone in our fight against COVID-19. More than 3,000 thousand deaths in one single day, the highest single death count during this pandemic. We're in the teeth of a crisis right now. And this nation needs presidential leadership right now. Presidential leadership that is willing to model the steps we should be taking for our, to save our own lives and the lives of our families. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, the congressional impasse over how to shield employers from virus-related lawsuits in a U.S. pandemic relief package deepened as negotiations amongst a bipartisan group of lawmakers dragged on. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell gave a sound on that. Flying to an older couple who hunkered down and survived this long year that their vaccines will arrive later than necessary because Democrats wouldn't let us fund distribution. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer had a different interpretation. The Republican leadership is blocking a solution for the entire country until they get a favor for corporations who don't even need it. Craig Gordon, my boss, Bloomberg Washington Bureau Chief, joins us uh, right now. Craig, are they going to get to a deal or is this just, is there no light at the end of the tunnel? I got to say, um, I, I, I would not call myself optimistic on the idea of a COVID stimulus um, package for this. And the reason is because the same thing that's been the sticking point today has been the sticking point for about six weeks now, which is this uh, thing that Mitch McConnell, we just had uh, heard him talking about the idea of a liability package for um, for companies as, as, you know, as COVID rages on. And the, and the theory there is that, you know, someday you and I will all go back to work and we'll be back in our offices and, and companies are worried that 
that um, employees will sue them over, you know, COVID protections, or did they do enough to keep us safe and the different um, protocols and procedures? And they're trying to basically get the, the U.S. Congress to say, you know, that we'll put a bar on those lawsuits or prevent those lawsuits from happening or whatever. Um, you know, we can all debate how many of those lawsuits have been. We just heard Chuck Schumer says there's only been 23 in the whole country. But if you run a service industry or a meatpacking plan or whatever, yeah, you got a lot of people coming into the, you know, into the uh, your workspace and, and you probably want some legal protections. We've been talking about this for literally two months, and yeah. it doesn't seem Eight like months. the Republicans have budged, and it doesn't seem like Democrats have budged on it either. And that makes me think, you know, boy, if you can't solve it in two months, I don't know why the next two weeks would be any different. Well, and, and to that point, I mean, Senator Chris Coons, a Delaware Democrat, said earlier today that this has been an eight-month impasse around liability issues, and it's proving to be extremely difficult to close it. I, I, I mean, we might have a vaccine and herd immunity before they get to any type of consensus around the issue of liability protections. And I think, candidly, we all thought that the price tag was going to be the most divisive issue and that them agreeing to something below a trillion dollars would bring about consensus. But what we've discovered this week is that that's simply not the case. So, I mean, if that happens, does that increase or decrease the chances that once Biden is sworn in, uh, that that he could get another round of stimulus in his first 100 days. Yeah, I mean, if you're Joe Biden and you're watching this, and again, as, as we just heard him say, you know, 3,000 deaths a, a day here uh, isn't doesn't seem to be, get Congress um, moving on this. I don't know why. Again, why would that necessarily change after noon on January 20th when he's sworn in as the president? Now, look, at some point, it does seem like you know they're, they, as you said, they're they're kind of circling around a number, 900 um, billion dollars. I, I didn't think the Democrats would go below a trillion, so that's progress. The Democrats have agreed to some of the state and local. Uh, funding changes, making it a need-based formula—that's progress. So you know, maybe eventually, there, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. But I think we're getting a little bit of a taste of what President Joe Biden, when he's not just President-elect Joe Biden, will face from the United States Senate. Mitch McConnell is not going to do something nice for you unless you can make him, and unless Joe Biden can find 51 votes for some of these things um, in the United States Senate, I, I think he's going to wait a long time for things like um, virus relief, stimulus relief. Um, spending plans, an infrastructure plan, a climate plan, a jobs plan, all the things that he ran on are going to run smack into the same wall that a lot of other presidents have run into, and that is a person named Mitch McConnell. It's, it's, it's really remarkable, and it's really interesting. And we've spent so much time, rightfully so, exploring the various dynamics and the new math, so to speak, on the left, and how uh, a president, Joe Biden, is going to be able to navigate that. But similarly, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is facing uh, some concerns on the right about, and, and he would share those concerns based upon conversations I have, about too much government spending. And that tension ahead of the midterms in 2022 is going to be a fascinating uh, t push and pull, so to speak, in Congress. Right, Craig? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, Republicans are the parties of, uh, of low, small government and low government spending. Now, uh, a listener might say, but didn't Donald Trump run up the deficit <laughs> to some insane level in the past four years? Well, sure, sure, sure. That was then. This is now. Um, and, they, and the Republicans do seem to have gotten religion on this topic. And what I think is kind of happening here, you know, we may remember there was just an election, you know, what is it, about four weeks ago now. The, Dem the Republicans did not really lose any ground in the Senate. They lost basically one seat net. Uh, they gained a bunch of seats in the House. Nancy Pelosi is now holding on to actually a fairly thin majority in the House after having 40-seat majority. And that was all after they had resisted a stimulus plan heading into the presidential election, the Senate and House election. So 
if I'm a Republican and I don't really like deficits and I'm not so sure that we need to, you know, sort of bail out companies or different things that were done in the first stimulus package, and I just held on to my seat in the Senate or watched my colleagues in the House gain in the majority, where, where's my political pressure? What's the political pressure on me to act right now? Because it seems like voters looked at the situation, Democrats wanted more stimulus, Republicans fought it, and went ahead and made a bigger House majority and basically kept the Senate the same. So I think, you know, this is where Joe Biden, you know, we just heard him talk about presidential leadership. Mr. Biden, I'd respectfully say we're going to need some presidential leadership after January 20th when you need to go to your old friend Mitch McConnell and some of those Republicans that you worked with, you know, a lot of those guys were still there when Joe Biden was in the Senate and say, hey, we got to get something done here. That's the essence of presidential leadership, basically getting McConnell to do maybe something he doesn't want to do. I, I, we'll see. I think it's going to be a very early and important test of, of Biden's presidency of whether he can get some of this stuff through in literally the earliest weeks of his presidency, you know, mm-hmm. at the beginning of those four years. I got it. Craig Gordon's with us. He's the uh, Washington, D.C. bureau chief. And uh, I got to get out the roster for, for next year. You know, I'm, I'm focused on next year and the team that's being assembled. I'm not talking about whether Dak Prescott's going to stay with the Cowboys or Carson <laughs> Wentz is still going to be with my Eagles. By the way, Craig, rough seasons for both of us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. seriously. Neither of us has much uh, bragging no. rights on the other in the phone call. You know it's no. bad when the Washington football team is ranked above <laughs> us. But anyway, uh, <laughs> moving on. I'm talking about the team of domestic picks that uh, the president-elect is assembling. Iowa Governor Tom Vilsack going to be back for uh, uh, as Secretary of Agriculture. Dennis McDonough for uh, Veterans Affairs. Susan Rice. This was the we got a minute left, but this was the name I wanted you to weigh in on. Susan Rice is going to lead the White House Domestic Policy Council. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because most people, again, most of our listeners would think of Susan Rice as, uh, you know, she was National Security Advisor, she was U.N. Ambassador, um, all of those jobs very heavily foreign policy. So what's she doing um, steering the ship over the Domestic Policy Council? I think the answer there is that, you know, she's known as a pretty tough a pretty tough person, a real bare-knuckled kind of Washington operator, and uh, is going to go in there and, and kind of get things done. The Domestic Policy Council is, it's a, can be a little sleepy. You know, there was one for Clinton, there was one for Obama. Um, you know, they just what it sounds like, domestic policy, all the different things that go on inside the country, education, health care, immigration, things like that, taxes, whatever. I think, that, I think they're looking for Susan Rice to come in and, you know, kick some butt and take some names, um, or else you wouldn't put her there. So that's, I agree with Kevin on this one. I agree with you, Kevin. That's a really interesting choice and one we're going to watch closely because it's very out of the box uh, for Biden when most of his choices have been, I think, fairly conventional. All right. My thanks to the boss, Craig Gordon, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief. Uh, We'll check in with you when the Eagles play the Cowboys. Thank you, as always, and have a great weekend. Much more coming up next. We check in on the markets. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We're all awaiting that okay go from the regulators here in Washington, D.C. on the vaccination front. And of course, if we get any of these breaking developments, we will bring them right to you. But first, uh, we got to check to see what went on in the markets today, uh, especially given all of the news flow, all of the ups and downs with regards to uh, with regards to uh, vaccines, Congress, stimulus. And it's really been dizzying. We all thought that we were going to get to some type of of uh, some type of deal. It just didn't happen. So we got to bring in the experts, and let's bring in Arian Vadani, investment strategist with MV Financial in Bethesda. Uh, Arian, Arian, what happened in the markets today? Uh, Kevin, uh, good to be back. Uh, Anytime. It's, uh, it's it's it really stems, I think, from disappointment regarding this uh, stimulus fallout. I mean, you know, uh, that was uh, last minute break apart again, and, and I think we all understand the importance of stimulus. Obviously, uh, stocks in the market has, has been running, but underneath that, the economy itself needs help, and, and Main Street America needs help. And you've heard this message from all number of people, including the Fed, including Jerome Powell. So seeing that break apart is definitely going to give investors pause. So, you know, I'm diving into my Bloomberg terminal right now. Stocks paired losses as lawmakers passed a stopgap spending bill to avert a federal government shutdown, but gave no signals of an imminent stimulus deal. And that's a really major development in the sense that there's not going to be a partial government shutdown. Okay, so Washington breathes a massive sigh of relief. But in a volatile session, the S&P 500 quickly trimmed a slide that reached about 1% earlier Friday. The equity benchmark still notched its worst weekly decline declined since October amid an impasse over a relief package and concern over tougher restrictions as coronavirus cases swept across the nation. So I got to ask you this, Arian, which is, is has the market priced in no fiscal stimulus this year? Are they prepared for the very real reality, as we just heard from the big boss, Craig Gordon, earlier, that there might not be fiscal stimulus this year? Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. I think at this point, it's I think there was hope, and I think at this point, it it probably puts the nail in the coffin that we can uh, expect there not to be stimulus this year. Um, you know, and it's interesting you brought up the the government funding. I don't think anyone this is the you know this is the first time that really the, the eyes have not been on 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 that idea, and mm-hmm. it's all been about stimulus. So the market has moved on from that, and and now and now um, they've moved on from that, but there's greater disappointment given the dire situation and kind of, you know, this is this has all been such a volatile year. You would think that this would be the one place that we could get uh, things to move forward. But uh, here we are. You know, I spoke with my with my, one of my friends and mentors, Greta Van Susteren, yesterday after the show. She spent the hour with us yesterday. And we're so grateful for Greta uh, to make the time for us uh, when, when she can. And, you know, I thought she 
so clearly articulated some of the frustration, the palpable emotion, the rightful indignation that so many people have. I mean, here we are. The U.S. appears poised to cross 300,000 COVID-19 deaths in the next week, and leadership in both parties cannot get their heads around a, a, a deal. It, it, it almost seems incredibly, incredibly uh, disconnected from the reality that every American outside of the Beltways and, and many Amer- Americans in the Beltway are experiencing. But there does appear to be hope. And I, I don't want to get, you know, angry as we head into a weekend, right? But there appears sure. to be hope on the vaccination front. How are investors looking at the vaccination news and the positive developments of the FDA likely going to approve uh, some of the vaccines and, and get them into the get them into the vaccination, vaccinating people uh, as early as next week? You know, really important because I think that's the place the market is actually more focused on. And, and I tell clients, you know, as we shift the talk from politics, politics plays shorthand typically. Don't get caught up in the, uh, you know, constant tumble. But the markets are looking forward, regardless of this, uh, you know, this daily, this week as disappointing. They're going to look forward to the bigger news, which is vaccines, because, uh, you know, that gives investors a long-term green light that, we will have some type of return normalcy, meaning that, you know, companies will get back to normal. We will be, get, be getting back to traveling, spending the way we were, and that all bodes well for the global economy. So it's important for investors to take this kind of disappointment and these kind of weeks. And remember, this is just daily, weekly market movement, and you have to keep focused on the longer prize. And that vaccine news that you bring up right now is, is the biggest piece of forward-looking news that investors are really focused on. Yeah, and, and, and I say this, right, especially as we head into a lonely holiday season for so many Americans, it's important to know that there is an end to all of this and the end is coming. I mean, we're, we are, folks, and what I would say is the two-minute warning before the vaccine really starts to come uh, over the next couple of months. And so, you know, once that happens, again, it's the end. There's an end. They have a cure. They have a vaccine. And so as a result of that, uh, this this is at some period going to end. And I think the markets have calibrated for that. They they're anticipating a much more of a return to normal by this by the late spring, summer, fall of next year. Uh, and as we all, as Washington holds its breath along with the rest of the country to see the FDA uh, reach some type of approvals. You know, meanwhile, I, I do want to pick your brain just about broader non-U.S. related market driving currents, especially on the U.S.-China front. So much of my world, of course, is uh, based on the incoming uh, administration and the team that they're putting together, uh, like a, a likely Treasury Secretary pick, Janet Yellen, and how she's going to regulate China and, and deal with China. What are you hearing from, from the financial crowd over how the Biden administration will uh, act with regards to China? That's a great question. I, I think generally you, you, you're seeing up, you're seeing, you know, upbeat sentiment. I mean, obviously Janet Yellen is a great pick for Treasury Secretary. We're seeing a much more experienced type of uh, pragmatic, uh, and not to be part of, this is not meant to be a part of the statement at all, but just pragmatic uh, cabinet and administration coming in, which can lead to uh, an easier kind of uh, parsing of how our relations go with China. Uh, you remember 
uh, you know, two years ago, a year ago, right, the, the trade war talk was what was jolting the market because it was so uh, erratic and we didn't, know, we didn't know how to parse it. And one day you'd hear one thing and the next day it was completely off. So I think just the fact that we are going to be able to better understand and see more uh, traditional diplomatic relationships, whatever uh, course they take, whether the Biden administration is tougher on China and really pushes forward with a global alliance to be tough on China and or not, I think that kind of certainty will be good for the markets. What are the, one of the articles that you recently wrote when I was show prepping was uh, money tips for millennials, steer a steady course in a turbulent year. What should uh, the under, I guess, forty crowd now be be doing as they as as the economy prepares to head out of this downturn? Yeah, I mean, this, 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 really, I'm not going to say anything mind blowing here because you need to be doing the things that you would be doing regardless of what kind of time it was, whether it's this challenging pandemic time or not. You need to be putting money aside, and if you're not saving and you're not investing in the market. You're missing out. I know. I know a lot of, and I've heard from a lot of millennials. They sat on their hands, kind of in in, in fear, uh, based on what was happening. Where this had all been a great opportunity for you, if you're a long-term investor, if you are a millennial who has a long timeline. You know, get your money working, get it into the markets, make the right financial decisions. Uh, you know, and and really look long-term and don't be sitting on the sidelines and do the short-term knee-jerk reactions to all this volatile top-line news. All right. My thanks to you, Ariane Vodani. Appreciate it. Investment strategist at MV Financial in Bethesda, Maryland. We'll catch up with you uh, later on uh, in the coming weeks. And I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. We pivot back to politics and policy coming up next on Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Live from our nation's capital. All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. 
stalemate on Congress. On the fiscal stimulus front, even as lawmakers avert a partial government shutdown, the latest from Capitol Hill, plus President-elect Joe Biden calling for presidential leadership now as the country averages 3,000 deaths a day on COVID-19. A lot to get through. We begin tonight with a big story. President-elect Joe Biden saying that presidential leadership is needed now as coronavirus cases continue to ravage the nation. This week marked another tragic milestone in our fight against COVID-19. More than 3,000 deaths in one single day, the highest single death count during this pandemic. We're in the teeth of a crisis right now. And this nation needs presidential leadership right now. Presidential leadership that is willing to model the steps we should be taking for our, to save our own lives and lives of our families. Meanwhile, the impasse on Capitol Hill over a fiscal stimulus deal continued despite lawmakers reaching agreement on a, a government funding bill that would keep the government open. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell blamed Democrats. Explain to an older couple who hunkered down and survived this long year that their vaccines will arrive later than necessary because Democrats wouldn't let us fund distribution. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer blamed Republicans. The Republican leadership is blocking a solution for the entire country until they get a favor for corporations who don't even need it. Tyler Deegis, fundraiser and president of Allegiance Strategies. Tyler, happy Friday. Welcome back to the program. I mean, it really is baffling that lawmakers, Speaker Pelosi, Leader McConnell, have not been able to get to a fiscal stimulus deal, even as the coronavirus cases are ravaging the country. Kevin, it's great to be here. It's such an important topic. I can't believe they won't just get to a deal. I think that as of this afternoon, We've at least cleared the decks with the NDAA, so we know that the military is going to be funded for the next year. But they just cannot come to any sort of an agreement. And just even listening to that audio, Kevin, I think the problem is, is that neither side is really being honest about what they want. Leader McConnell wants a short-term temporary liability reform for business owners, similar to what we did after 9-11. I don't think that that is a crazy ask at all, but I think that the problem is, is that Neither side is just being clear that that's the hang-up. There are a lot of small businesses that are afraid of litigation. They've had to do things to, to just deal with the health and safety of their employees that are unusual, right? I mean, this is what a wild situation to have a global pandemic. And I think that Leader McConnell has the better argument. But I'll tell you this, Kevin, if Republicans don't pass a stimulus, I think it's going to hurt us in Georgia. I think if we don't get a deal it increases the likelihood that we lose two Senate seats down in Georgia in the runoffs next month. You do think that. Wow. I mean, but I want to let's let's we'll go to Georgia in a little bit. But and sticking with the issue of, of liability protections, you raise a, an interesting point, which is that, the, that this impacts Main Street as well. The, the liability protections issues. But here we are. We started this last week where we all thought. The coalescing behind a number, $908 billion, $916 billion on some estimates, was a major breakthrough. And ultimately, as Senator Chris Coons, I believe, put it to reporters earlier today, Democrats, Delaware, you know, as he put it, this is much more complex than that. This is the issue of liability protections. What I cannot understand is why 
either side thinks that if they don't pass it now, they'll be able to get to it in a Biden first 100 days. <laughs> That's a great point, Kevin. I mean, look, kudos to Senator Coons and Senator Manchin and Senator Warner and the other Democrats who got behind the gang's proposal. This is the $908 billion proposal because it included a six-month short-term liability reform. And I know, and, and I've seen some of these Democrats just getting absolutely lit up by the trial lawyers for even supporting that six-month measure. That is probably the best that McConnell's going to get. I don't see how it gets better once we have a Democratic president. Um, and I think that Leader McConnell needs to take the deal. Um, I think that it's time to just get as much as he can. Now, what I want to say, though, is that this is not about Fortune 50 and Fortune 100 corporations. They have plenty of money to hire yeah, lawyers. This is important. I'm talking about this the part's small important. businesses. Mm-hmm. It's small businesses that are being threatened. The small businesses who can't afford of, the plexiglass to, to, to comply with no. the local regulations. Go ahead, Tyler. Well, and especially not when they're getting shut down arbitrarily by local and state government officials who are, you know, just yeah. making all of these decisions without regard to data or the economic loss. And, you know, that's why I really come down in the middle in this. I think that it was great for the Republicans to... Um, give up on some of their demands. I think it was great for Democrats to come to the middle on liability reform. I think that Leader McConnell could push for a little bit more, maybe more of a robust protection, especially if we we make those protections more robust for the smaller businesses. Then we could come to a deal. It is so close to having a deal, Kevin. And I think that a lot of senators are doing this the right way, but I think the leaders in both parties are the problem more than it is the rank-and-file members. Well, and they've got, they only passed a one-week extension to avert the, the government shutdown. And then you've got Senator Bernie Sanders uh, of Vermont, uh, who is threatening now to block the uh, funding when the vote comes around next week unless the Senate steps up to help working Americans. Take a listen to Bernie Sanders. We cannot go back to our families during the Christmas holidays while tens of millions of families are suffering. They are looking toward us. And then Senator Josh Hawley also spoke on the, uh, on, the, on the Senate floor. Here's the Republican from Missouri. If the Senate of the United States can find hundreds of billions of dollars to give to big government and big business, surely it can find some relief for working families and working individuals. You know, I don't mean to criticize either side here, and nor the two sound bites that we just played. I mean, it is their, they, they all have to speak on the Senate floor. But Tyler Deaton, Republican insider, I, I wish they would just get in a room, close the door, and not come out until they have a deal. Yeah, well, and I'll tell you, but Republicans and Democrats, I'm talking to more Republicans than Democrats, yeah. but they all are, are basically saying, you know, drop the prima donna routine. Okay, like we would all love <laughs> to be able to get out more stimulus. I wish, but it's I, could, not I, wish I could quote that in an article <laughs> on a Friday. Sources close to Republic, or Republican insiders say, quote, drop the prima donna routine. Go ahead. I mean, <laughs> Christine Barana, I want is. that in the intro for the show next week. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. It's, that's what it is. And so, you know, to get out there and to be grandstanding, it's not productive. It's not, by the way, it's not going to get those checks into the deal. You know, throwing down these arbitrary markers here at the at the very end of the debate, 
And look, I, I am as for that as I am for every part of this. But the reality is, is there are other more economically efficient measures that we have to do first. We have to expand the pandemic unemployment. We've got to help the airlines, which, by the way, if we structure that deal correctly, then the taxpayers will make money off of that bailout, Kevin, just like we did with the automakers. And you know who's going to deliver these vaccines around the country and around the world? It's going to be the United States Airlines. And so there are things we have to do in the next week. We should have done them by today. It's and we did, going yeah. to hurt Republicans if we don't do it. All right. And coming up, we're going to talk much more about the vaccines and where we stand on that front with Tyler Deaton, uh, Republican, ins- or, yeah, Republican insider. No prima donna routines here. Tom Keene would be all over me if I pulled a prima donna fit. I can't, can't let Tom Keene down. I'm Kevin Cerilli. This is Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cerilli. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cerilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Joining us now for the All-Star Panel, Tyler Deaton, Republican Strategist, Fundraiser, and President of Allegiant Strategies, and Karen Finney, Democratic Strategist and former Clinton Campaign Spokesperson. Karen, great to have you here. I want to pick your brain about the roster not the roster of my horrific Philadelphia Eagles, which are suffering <laughs> a quarterback catastrophe of a $31 million worth proportions in the decline of Carson Wentz that has agonized the city of brotherly love. Bad things do, in fact, happen when Carson Wentz is quarterbacking the Eagles in Philadelphia. But I will let that go and get back on topic on this Friday and talk about President-elect Joe Biden's focus on domestic policy with the rollout of newest picks. I'm looking at the roster. It's got uh, a former Iowa governor, Tom Vilsack, to reprise the role he played for eight years as Secretary of Agriculture, Dennis McDonough as Biden's pick for the VA, and Susan Rice, and this is the pick I want to focus on first, Susan Rice, the former National Security Advisor and Ambassador to the United Nations, who Biden seriously considered to be his running mate, is going to lead the White House Domestic Policy Council. What role will she play? What does that mean? I don't think a lot of people are familiar with the Domestic Policy Council, but they are familiar with Susan Rice. Sure. Well, so the Domestic Policy Council and her role will be to help coordinate, you know, inside the White House, all of the policy areas. So if you're talking about immigration, racial equality, housing, agriculture, rural affairs. So you have sort of there's kind of three. There's the National Security Council, which uh, tends to focus on uh foreign policy, foreign affairs. You've got the Economic Council, which is, as you might think, the economy, uh, although it does, I will say, it does work very much uh, in close con- concert with uh, the other two and specifically uh, the Domestic Policy Council. And, you know, one of the reasons I think Biden so wisely selected um, Ambassador Rice is to sort of revamp the the Domestic Policy Council and, and run it kind of more like the NSC in terms of the way it coordinates across policy areas that could also, you know, also across um, agencies to really streamline 
uh, operations. And I think this is a sign, frankly, that Biden uh, and Harris recognize, you know, the in terms of the task that is in front of them because of COVID and so many, which is impacting all across our, our, our daily lives, uh, the importance of, you know, having teams and having people who know really how to cut through the tape and get things done. So I let me follow up on this before we bring in Tyler. So it's, I mean, because that, that's what I was, when I was talking with folks, I mean, that's really what it appears to be is this is a, this is a reshaping of the domestic policy mm-hmm. council. I mean, when you have such a, a dominant force uh, like a Susan Rice uh, le- leading the helms of the domestic policy council, I, she's really going to have the opportunity to reshape this in a way that, I don't know, in, in a way that we haven't seen in quite some time. I, I'm curious because clearly she is, is so influential, especially in, in, in democratic circles and, and relationships on Capitol Hill. But I'm curious precisely if we know any of what her portfolio will be in the first 100 days, especially on the COVID-19 front. Do we know that yet? Well, I mean, I think it's COVID, 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 yeah. COVID, right? I mean, and again, I would imagine, and we've sort of heard this from uh, President-elect Biden, you know, depending upon where we are with the distribution of vaccines, I mean, that will be a, a critical first task, frankly, of the administration, you know, forget about day one, hour one, uh, in terms of making sure that that continues uh, to happen smoothly, uh, and then what are the, the the next steps from from there? So uh, that, like as I say, I mean the, the domestic policy council, I mean, tends to focus on sort of outside of economic matters, and again, they do coordinate, uh, you know, all these other areas uh, of policy. And I think something you said is really important that I'll just reemphasize: having someone of Susan's stature and experience in the role does send a signal, I think a very important signal um, about the importance, obviously, that the president-elect and vice president-elect put on the role of the DPC in terms of, again, making sure you are turbocharging the ability to, uh, you know, I won't even say hit the ground running, but really hit the ground sprinting uh, with someone, you know, Susan has, uh, you know, she is, in my opinion, a stellar public servant. She knows how the government works. She knows how the various parts of the government work. So having someone who has a vision um, on how to pull all those pieces together and help move uh, the Biden-Harris agenda forward, particularly in the middle of, you know, as as the president-elect mentioned today, I mean, we're talking not just about the COVID pandemic, but we're talking about a, a moment of real um, uh, transition and strife in our country. And we've got, you know, the crisis uh, of, you know, the racial reckoning that we started to see unfolding uh, this this summer, spring and summer. Uh, Tyler Deaton, let's come in, uh, come in here, because as, as the uh, the, the head of the, the White House Domestic Policy Council, she will not have to face Senate confirmation. Uh, so it, it's a it's an influential role that she will have in the Biden administration. And she avoids having to go through a contentious Republican led uh, confirmation hearings. That's right. And, and actually, that was my takeaway from this is that with her. Tyler. And on having her in the domestic Tyler, policy. Tyler, you council. cut out there, but I want to hear what you had to say. So go ahead, start all over. Oh, I'm sorry. No, Just okay. that I, I think that with her selection, it signals that they don't intend to have her in the domestic policy council engage much with Congress. I don't see her as being somebody that should the Senate stay a Republican majority. I don't see her having a lot in her track record of being able to work across the aisle. And that's my just bigger point about all of Biden's appointments to date is that. 
other than himself, right, because I think that our president-elect can reach across the aisle, he's not picking a lot of other people to staff up this administration who are known for bridging the aisle. And so far, he's not know. really selected a Republican uh, either. I, I, mean, I would, I would, I'm going to have to yeah, I'm gonna go have disagree with that. I mean, look, we don't know where and when, you know, what is there to disagree with? He hasn't picked a Republican. Well, I didn't disagree with that part, actually, before. It's, and I'm fine <laughs> if he doesn't pick a Republican. I have I to cut you off in like 15 seconds. Go ahead. Sure. Just my point is just I think he has chosen people who have actually worked in their various previous capacities. They have worked with Republican leaders who? in Congress and certainly uh, in their roles moving forward. Uh, I think it's to the benefit of the American people that Republicans in Congress deserve, Americans deserve for them to be willing to work very closely with this administration on this pandemic to make sure that we're all healthy and safe. Yeah, we got to leave it right there, but we'll come back with much more. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. And uh, coming up next, we're going to check in with what's on the panel's radar. Karen Finney and Tyler Deaton are still on standby for us. Uh, This, as the nation, the world, really eagerly awaits the FDA giving the nod of approval to the vaccines. And those vaccines, 22 million of them this month alone, Uh, could be in the U.S. uh, once the FDA officially approves those vaccination fronts. But it's set up an interesting, not interesting, I mean, it's set up an incredibly important uh, conversation around the country, especially around cities and hospitals, about who gets the vaccinations first on frontline workers as well as the elderly. And here in the nation's capital, the, the ecosystem of hospitals are not just in Washington, D.C. They are also, of course, in the greater DMV region, Northern Virginia, Maryland, uh, and the like. I want to bring into this conversation a good friend of the program, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, of a Democrat representing the city of Washington, D.C. And Congresswoman, I know that you've been very much involved in the conversations about where the vaccinations are going to go once they get approved where will they go? Will why, will the nation's capital have enough vaccines? Well, the nation's capital uh, allocation is not enough uh, because, uh, and in fact, I, I had to write a letter. Uh, most of our health care workers come from the surrounding states, Maryland and Virginia. But uh, by giving the district only enough uh, and a very uh, small number based on population, our health care workers, we won't even be able uh, to give the vaccine to our health care workers. So this I re- recognize, but I'm afraid they didn't, that this is an unusual situation. Uh, but uh, I wrote a letter, the mayor wrote a letter, and we're trying our best uh, to make sure that our health care workers get the vaccine First, because they serve the rest. Well, I have to interrupt. I mean, what what do you mean? I mean, this is what do you mean that the healthcare workers? There's not going to be enough vaccines for the healthcare workers. What does that even mean? How did that even happen? The healthcare worker, they they are basing this on population. As it turns out, 
most of the health care workers do not live in the district. So if it's based on population, it won't cover the health care workers that uh, by all that you have heard uh, should be the first See, I find this fascinating. I mean, this is angering. So so because Washington, D.C. is a district and because the hospitals in the, the capital of the United States of America, because the employees of these incredibly important institutions uh, for public health that serve not just thousands of, of Americans and citizens of Washington, D.C., but also uh, members of Congress, for example, because of, because they're they're commuting in to a city yes. that that isn't a part of Virginia, isn't a part of Maryland. The calculation that the people dis- distributing the vaccines have made is inherently flawed. Is that what you're telling me? That's exactly right. It's it's not. Ba- it, well, how do we fix fact, it, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes well, Norton? But how you fix it is you write you write them an angry letter, and so does the mayor. Uh, and we haven't gotten any word yet. This just came to light within the last two days. So we're trying to make sure that they understand that this city is in a different position uh, from other areas because of where our healthcare workers live. And so who do you write? I mean, who's in charge of, of that logarithm, for lack of a better word, in terms of the distribution model? Well, you you write the uh, you write the uh, I don't I don't recall the name of the person, but you write uh, the uh, which branch? I mean, is it the executive? Is it Congress? No, this is being done by the people who are passing out the uh, the vaccine. All right. And as a result of that, in your conversations, just switching gear, I mean, I know uh, this is a delicate topic, but just the lack of financial assistance, uh, even for for cities like Washington, D.C., as lawmakers are stuck in a stalemate and cannot get to some type of deal. It's got to frustrate you. Well, that's very frustrating. Um, The deal fell apart today, and so we're on a... um uh, a one-week, I think, extension just to keep the government open. Uh, the Republicans are uh, adamant of not wanting to spend any money during a coronavirus emergency. Uh, and uh, the the Speaker is trying to do more. I mean, she's even come down. There's, there's a $900 billion deal on the table trying to fit us into it. I had a conversation with her yesterday because there was uh, some funding for the district that had been left out of the HEROES Act that she has since put back in. It was left out by Republicans when they were in charge of one of the CARES Act, um, CARES Act uh, uh, that came through uh, some months ago. So how do you uh, make, how do you she make sure her frustration? But she how do you make sure Washington D.C. is not left out of the next round of fiscal stimulus? I mean, that's infuriating that the that the Washington D.C., a, a major met- metropolitan uh, city in in the United States of America, was left out of funding in the last round of stimulus. Can you assure people that that is no, not going to happen? Funding just a moment. It wasn't left out of funding in the last stimulus. Uh, it, some of the funding.
funding we were due did not come, and we're trying to get that back. Well, well that I, sounds I, like they were left. I hate to interrupt you, Congresswoman, but for people whose livelihoods are dependent upon that, that's infuriating. That what, they forgot to send the money that they need this moment? That's infuriating. We What, what happened was when the Republicans, usually spending bills, uh, originate in the House, and in that case, we are okay. One of those bills originated in the Senate, and the Senate deprived this bill deprived the district of seven hundred and fifty million dollars it was due. That's what I'm trying to get back. We've gotten our other money, and in the bill that is before us now, of course, I don't know what the pared down bill will look like. The speaker did put that money back in for us. So the district, as you know, is often treated um, mostly by Republicans in as unequally as they can. Well, seven hundred and fifty uh, million dollars. Where does that money for, Congresswoman Eleanor? Be the case until our statehood bill, which passed the House. I understand that, but I, I want to focus on the mo- the missing money. There's seven hundred and fifty million dollars. What is the status of that money, and wh- where should it have gone? Uh, that money should have gone to the District of Columbia uh, to be used for what? It, it 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 was not what it was to be used for. It was part of the CARES Act, and it was due the district. Um, it was cut because the district was treated as a territory. The district is not a territory and is never treated as a territory, especially for spending purposes. It is treated always as a state, and that's even before we get statehood. Right. That, that's the way it's always been. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but I just had to be frank. I mean, if there's $750 million, people deserve to know what it is going to be used for, where it should be distributed, and why it wasn't dispersed, especially when small businesses across the district no, well, that's what it, to... look, it was going to be used for small businesses, for schools, for families, for what it's, for what it's being used for uh, in the other states. That wasn't the issue. They didn't, they didn't take it from us because of what it was going to be used for. It was going to be used for small businesses, for schools. For the same things that it, well, the fa- it, we have we have to, we're up against a heartbreak, and I appreciate your time, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. But the fact of the matter is, people need that money, and they needed it yesterday, and they needed it when that bill passed. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for uh, Bloomberg Radio. Uh, I'm joined by Karen Finney, Democratic strategist and former Clinton campaign spokeswoman, and Tyler Deaton, Republican strategist, fundraiser, president of Allegiance Strategies. Uh, Tyler, I know you were listening to that interview with Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. I just want to get your reaction to it. Yeah, I mean, look, the CARES Act had a lot of flaws. I am not at all familiar with what she was describing related to D.C., but I'd certainly believe it. I mean, I just I have a list of just the drafting errors in the CARES Act that runs on the multiple pages that I'm hoping we pass a deal just so we can still do the technical corrections to the CARES Act. I mean, do you know the CARES Act left out people just because they were married to an immigrant? Even if they're married to a legal immigrant, they got denied their stimulus check. Adults with Down syndrome and other adult, uh, adult people with disabilities got left out of the stimulus. I mean, there are just all sorts of problems with the CARES Act. So I appreciate that she's highlighting that. I don't think we should let that go, that there's still some cleanup we've got to do. I'm just I'm not familiar with with what she was describing. Yeah, I, I don't think it was. She was very confusing, and I and I, I'm not sure I understood the argument that she was making either. Um, okay, let's do uh, time now for my favorite part of the program, which is what is on the panel's <laughs> radar. Karen Finney, what's on your radar? Oh, sweet Monday, December fourteenth, the electors <laughs> vote, and every, and then it is done, 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 and this you know repo- this nightmare of you know a Republican party that is aiding and abetting attempts to disenfranchise millions of Americans. For those who don't know, I mean, you know, the the Electoral College will vote on Monday. We had happening uh, just, I guess, in the last, feels like 24, 48 hours, although always hard to track in COVID. Uh, (laughs) It's not March. It's still not March. It really isn't. And it's still 2020, folks. So Uh, we're almost done. Only for two more weeks, Karen. Come on, it's Friday. Give us some optimism. That's right. That's right. But I think, you know, look, this all kind of kicked into high gear when you have, you know, attorney, Republican attorney general trying to file a law, a last ditch effort with very little legal merit, as I understand it, from legal scholars uh, to try to, again, go to the Supreme Court to overturn the will of the American people, the votes of Americans in uh four states, and you've now got over 130 uh, Republican congressmen, including now, I, I believe it's Kevin McCarthy, has, has joined. It's just appalling, and it's such a disgusting uh, perversion of our democracy. And so I look forward to the electors voting on Monday, um, and, you know, I, I hope that that will, at least those who are able to come to their senses in the Republican Party will do so and, and just stop this nonsense and stop trying to take away votes from Americans who voted uh, legally um, and within their absolute right to do so. Tyler, before I ask you what's on your radar, let's let's unpack this a little bit, because you had alluded at the top of the hour to the Georgia runoffs uh, on January 5th. And that is obviously a very crucial, crucial uh, election um, and its impact on the dynamic in the Senate. But you had you had mentioned that not passing a fiscal stimulus relief bill might hurt Republicans' chances in Georgia. Coupled with what 
Karen just uh, alluded to, which will likely try the, the Democrats will try to use to galvanize the progressive base in Georgia. How how much wh- what are your thoughts on what she's saying, coupled with lack of stimulus funding and how that impacts Georgia? I think that there are a lot of center right independent voting, but usually Republican supporting men and women and especially women in the Atlanta suburbs. And they are absorbing all of this, Kevin. And everything that Karen was just describing, these voters, they're seeing that, they're hearing that. And I think a lot of them are alarmed. I think it's why President-elect Biden won Georgia. Um, I think it's why the, uh, the two Democratic gentlemen, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, were able to keep it close in Georgia during the general elections. And it's why we're in this runoff situation. I think that Republicans are playing with fire. Um, I think it does hurt our democracy. And I think if, if people won't buy that, then they should at least buy that it's hurting us in the immediate term in these Georgia runoffs. I think that voters are going to punish Republicans if we continue to look like sore losers. It's just as simple as that. Karen, do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Um, And look, in Georgia, I mean, I think the other thing that is is really mobilizing people, I mean, look, I I think it does hurt with moderate Republicans, uh, no question. I think it also, uh, you know, there is really high motivation to vote among Democratic voters in Georgia because people understand. I mean, if you are someone who fought for criminal justice reform or protecting our health care, people are very aware in Georgia that voting for Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff is a way to to make sure those things happen. Those are not issues where the Republican Party has any credibility. And frankly, for black voters in particular, those are life and death issues. Frankly, COVID is a life and death issue uh, right now as well. And so that's a lot of what is mobilizing people and motivating them. Uh, Tyler Deaton, what's on your radar? Well, I would love to keep talking about Georgia because that's what I think is the make or break. And It's going to be a $1 billion Senate race before this is all said and done. It may not cost as much as the presidential election, but I'll tell you what, it's heading that way. We've never seen money being spent like this. And I tell you, Kevin, I don't think the money matters. I think they're spending so much. It's just the money always matters. (laughs) That I can tell you. The money always matters. (laughs) And you know what, Tyler? I'm going to call your bluff because it's Friday and I need to have some fun. You're a fundraiser. The money always matters. But go ahead. No. No. We have gone through the looking glass. No, I mean, definitely. Neither do you, Karen. Go ahead, Tyler. Go to georgiabattlegroundfund.com. But otherwise, look, they have more money than they need. All right. And that's really the bottom line is that this race won't be decided by the money. Everybody's got more money than God. Who has the message? And I will say this to what Karen was saying, because I have a bit of a disagreement. I think that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are actually not great candidates for Georgia. But Republicans are just shooting themselves in the foot and they shoot themselves in the other foot and then the hand and then the other hand. And it's just Republicans (laughs) right now. I'm in shock that. We're just doing everything we can to lose these races to two gentlemen who are way too liberal for Georgia, but have a very serious chance of winning simply because I think a lot of those independent right-leaning voters are fed up. And there is very little time left to course correct. There is less than four weeks left. Tyler Deaton sounds, Karen, I'm struck by this. Tyler Deaton (laughs) sounds pessimistic on Republicans' chances in Georgia. Wow. I mean, are, uh, well, are you are you I, I optimistic about Democrats? I'm raising the alarm. Yeah, no, I, I hear it. I, I hear it. 
Yeah, I, I am for a couple of reasons. Number one, as you know, Kevin, I worked with, for, I advised Stacey Abrams' yeah. gubernatorial race in 2018. And I also happen to know that over the last 10 years, she and other organizations have fundamentally done the hard incremental work year in and year out of reaching out to voters, registering voters, doing voter education, voter mobilization. So the voters are there. I agree it's going to be less about money as more about mobilization and who can turn their voters out. You've got a situation in Georgia where more people have requested absentee ballots in the for the runoff than did in the general election. So that's what, when I say motive, and these tend to be Democrats. So the motivation mm-hmm. is very high. Last thing I'll say, you know, some of the criticisms that have been leveled, for example, at Raphael Warnock, the pastor of Martin Luther King Jr.'s former church, are similar, that he's too much of a lefty. I don't think we see Martin Luther King Jr. as too much of a lefty. This is a pastor who has, you know, built community uh, and knows how to bring people together. John Ossoff, someone who has worked, you know, at the side of John Lewis, a great American hero, and frankly knows something about how to root out corruption. And so I think both men actually mm-hmm. have very important uh, stories and messages uh, that they're and and what they're talking about in the election, it, this election matters, and the fact that they have been willing to talk to voters everywhere go. and go to all parts of Georgia, it's the weekend, going to make the difference. I gotta go. Thank you so much, Karen Finney. Truly, it. thank you for your time, Tyler Deaton. Thank you for your time, truly, and thank you for listening. Thank you to Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton as well. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Have a great weekend, everybody. Stay safe. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.